January 10th, 1982, with less than a minute left in the game, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Joe Montana rolled right to pass. In hot pursuit were three Dallas Cowboy defenders. He, he stepped back and threw a pass high in the air, deep into the end zone. Six foot four receiver Dwight Clark leapt in the air and caught the pass with his fingertips. That game-winning play became immortalized as the catch. And it propelled the 49ers to the Super Bowl where they beat the Cincinnati Bengals and went on to record four Super Bowl championships within one decade. Those were the good old days. <laughs> Sadly, Dwight Clark passed away in June from ALS. And he had asked Joe Montana to speak at his funeral since they were longtime friends. And Montana, who's by far the more famous of the two uh, and celebrated as a member of football's Hall of Fame, said this about his friend. The thing Dwight would always say to me was, you know, they don't call it the throw. One day, Jesus stepped into a boat belonging to a Galilean fisherman by the name of Simon and asked him to move away from the shoreline so that he could speak to the crowd at the water's edge, sort of an amphitheater style. They had crowded in on him so much that he needed space in order to accomplish what he came for. Jesus knew what he was doing wasn't just talking to the crowd. He had asked to have a private session with Simon because he couldn't go anywhere. He had to hear every word that Jesus said. And when Jesus finished talking to the crowd, he then turned and spoke directly to Simon and said, Now, I want you to move out into deep water and, and drop down your nets. This is where I want us to pause and imagine that you're Peter. I love the comedian whose, whose shtick used to be that he would say things to people, things that weren't considered politically correct, things that he actually thought. Like if his wife said something to him, he would say something in return. And I said to her, and a string of things, and you're kind of aghast. And then at the end, he would say, on the inside. There's some things that aren't ever said on the outside unless you make a mistake, and then you get in a lot of trouble. People lose their jobs. They, all kinds of things happen. I wonder if Simon thought to himself, Jesus, you know about God and matters of faith. I know about fish and fishing. And now is not the time to go fishing. For one reason, the fish can see the nets. It's, there's a reason we fish at night. So 
it's a waste of time to go back out there. Besides, we've just been fishing all night. We're tired. We want to go home. On the inside. But he didn't say it on the outside. Instead, he did as Jesus said. Ah, and there's, there's the lesson. Because his life from that point on was changed forever. The catch of fish, as kids say today, was ginormous. So much so, he had to call for help. It took two boats to haul the fish in. And even then, the boat started to sink. The catch was extraordinary. You could call it the catch of a lifetime. Ask any fisherman, what has been your catch of a lifetime? And they will gladly tell you. They'll tell you how much it weighed. They'll tell you what the conditions were. The amazing thing is that it wasn't the fish that made it so. It was the catch of the life of Peter. That's what was extraordinary. They left their nets, their daily routines, their vocations. Everything that they lived for, that held their attention every day, they left it all to follow Jesus. When you compare this with Mark's account, there's a sense of buildup in Luke. In Mark's account, it's just immediate and, um, and urgent that they, when you get to they left everything, it's, there was no uh, preparation at all. You couldn't understand what would have compelled them to do that. You're just left with the fact that it's just Jesus alone and his words. But in Luke's case, there's been a buildup. They've already heard of Jesus' popularity. They know of it. He's been working in the region of Capernaum. He's known for his teaching unlike anyone else. The way that he talks about God and makes God accessible to the common people. And the fact that he's healed people and cast out demons. Everyone wants to know Jesus. And so they've been crowding in to get to him. And Jesus has even been in Peter's home. I mean, Simon's home. He, he will later call him Peter. He's been in his home. So it was strategic that Jesus chose his boat to get into. This wasn't the first time Simon listened to Jesus. He had heard him many times. But it was when... He saw the catch. I mean, in the moment, they were all excited, hauling it in, and, and he had people helping him. And then, as he reflected on it, he's thinking, this wasn't no ordinary day. There's no explanation for this catch except for Jesus. And he goes to him and falls at his knees 
and says, leave me, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's reminiscent of of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah's call in in Isaiah chapter 6? He's in the temple and the whole place is filled with the presence of God and the glory of God. And he is in awe, but he's also shuddering. And he wants out. In the presence of such holiness, he wants to be somewhere else. And the beautiful thing is you know that God's about to call him to be a spokesperson. So what does he say? Lord, I'm a person of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Peter says something similar. Lord, I'm unworthy to be in the presence of someone who is sent by God. That's just not me. And I'm unworthy to receive this gift. This is too much. There's going to be a lot of taxes on this hall. And Lord, I don't know what to do under these circumstances in the presence of such holiness. So could you just go? And then look at the incredible contrast. As he's saying that, Jesus says, come, follow. Follow me. Peter's saying, go. Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Because Peter, I mean Simon, who he later renames Peter the Rock, I know more about you than I think you know. And I also know how much God desires you and has a plan for you. Peter's response, Luke tells us, is one of fear. And Jesus assures him that there's nothing to be afraid of. If you thought catching a boat full of fish was exciting, then wait till your next catch. Try telling a fisherman, yeah, that was a pretty good catch, but wait till your next one. Wait till your next one. Jesus invites Peter to come and catch the world. I think most of us identify readily with Peter's fear, even though we're not told specifically what it was. Because fear is a typical way in which people formulate faith. Some choose not to believe out of fear. And others come to believe because of fear. And some continue to practice faith that is motivated by fear. But the gospel doesn't want fear to be part of our faith. Every time there's a personal encounter with God or with an agent of God in the gospels, what's the first response on that person's part? Fear not. 
Don't be afraid. That's the wrong response. It's the natural human response. But God's saying, you need to get oriented. You're just not used to the divine and the holy in your midst. So Jesus tells Peter to move past his fear and then decide whether to accept his invitation. And I think Jesus asked the same of each and every one of us to, to assess what fears keep us at distance from God. Either initially in coming to believe in Jesus in the first place or continuing to believe in him. Fears keep creeping in. Have I made the right choice? Is this the right path? Have I given my life to the right cause? In his book, Called, former pastor of Berkeley First Presbyterian Church and now president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laberton, speaks of what his fear was in coming to faith in Jesus when he was in college. Here's what he writes. When I was considering the possibility of embracing Christian faith as a young college student, what I feared most was that it would make my life smaller rather than larger. Less love, less joy, less creativity, less wonder, and less engagement. And I had met enough Christians who were incarnational proof of this. Because that's how they lived. And so when I finally came to faith in Christ, it was because I discovered that Jesus saves people from the very smallness that I feared. Isn't that amazing? I saw that the very essence of the kingdom of God is a life bigger than I would have ever found outside of it. Which is one of the reasons why we've called this series in Luke, Inside Out. Because so many people on the outside looking in think it's small. But if you'll see the image on that bulletin, it's, we're, it's peeling back what the world, it's discovering what is actually there and how God sees this world and how God rules it. That it enlarges one's life rather than diminishes it. Causes us to flourish rather than, than disappear. Does the Christian worldview and allegiance to Jesus diminish one's view of the world or does it enlarge it? Is being a Christian a liability or is it life's greatest fulfillment? When our children were young and growing up on the Monterey Peninsula, they would, our son in particular, who was, who was three and a half years older, would come home and tell me what he was going to be when he grew up because, because his best friend's dad was a stockbroker and he owned all of his own ski equipment. Whereas Mark, when he was going to go on the church ski trip, had to rent his 
not knowing that his dad was making a sacrifice so he could go on the trip in the first place. But in his mind, being a pastor is limiting. Being a stockbroker gives you a chance to experience lots of things. But I've told both of my children, I have seen and done more, and you have benefited from that more than you will ever know because of faith in Christ. In terms of world standards and world opportunities, yes, it might appear smaller, but there's more than that. So much more. I wish I could preach the kind of sermon I heard once that, that made me respond the way the disciples on the road to Emmaus did. My heart burned within me when I heard this sermon about don't give your life to anything less than Christ. Because Christ opens the door to a world that is so much larger, so much greater so much more real than the one we might choose otherwise. One of the most significant obstacles of aligning ourselves with Jesus is the life and witness of individual Christians whose words and actions don't reflect a gospel of grace, of mercy, of love, and of justice. I was struck two weeks ago when I, when I drove by St. Eugene's and they have a marquee in their parking lot area on Montgomery Drive. And the marquee read, don't leave Jesus because of Judas. And at first I thought, well, who would do that? <laughs> Judas betrayed Jesus. And then it dawned on me. The Roman Catholic Church has been in the news lately for priests, clergy who have abused their station and abused individuals, committed heinous acts. And then there are those in leadership who have, who for the sake of the church protected them or covered it up or not necessarily protected them but didn't allow it to out in the public. And I thought, oh my goodness. Judas was a leader among Jesus' disciples or one of the disciples, and he, he failed to live up to who Jesus was. So they're saying, don't leave Jesus because of one of his followers. I thought, wow, that's a bold statement. And then I thought, who puts these signs up? And I wondered, does the bishop approve of them before they go up? And apparently not, because a week later I drove by and that sign changed. It doesn't say that anymore. It says, don't leave Jesus because he loves you. I thought, well, that's a strange thing. Why put don't leave Jesus? Just say, Jesus loves you. I mean...
there was this veiled, in this appeal to faith, there was this veiled admission of wrong. I think that's very authentic. That's very true to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not consistent. Keep pointing to Jesus. Keep directing people to who he is and what he says and what he does. Those of you that know the Duffies know that they're... um, the caregiver that provides assistance at home, Jesus, um, has been part of their lives for some time. And I was in the library when he was there recently, and he told this delightful story. Phone rings into the home of a family with small children, and a little boy answers it. And the man says, recognizing he's a child, says, is your mother there? And in a whisper, he is, yes. Well, can I talk to her? She's busy. (laughs) Was your father there? Yes. Can I speak with him? He's busy. Supposing he must have had siblings that might have been older. Well, is your sister or brother there? Yes. Can I speak with her, him or her? She's busy. Finally, the man on the other end says, what's going on in your house that everyone's so busy? They're looking for me. (laughs) This is one of the reasons salespeople have to make seven phone calls to really get to get an answer. Jesus made the focus of his mission and ministry about him. People were looking for him. They were drawn to him. And when he invites us to follow, he in essence is inviting us to make our lives about him. And like Peter, James, and John, we're being invited to leave behind all that has been of value and to find our sense of identity and our sense of belonging in relationship to Jesus and the community that he is forming and building around himself in order to accomplish God's redemptive purposes in this world. The most important decision we ever make, and it's not a one-time decision, It's a daily decision is to follow him. There's so much the world bombards us with and gets our attention and draws us to. But are we ready to respond when Jesus says, come, follow me? It's the story of a lifetime.